Thanks so much for joining us today. The Bible reading for this message is taken from Acts chapter 15, from verse 1 to verse 21. Why don't you push pause on this video now, go and have a read through Acts chapter 15, verse 1 to 21, and then come back. Also, if anything gets said in this video that is helpful or encouraging, uh, or that draws you closer in your relationship with the Lord, why not push the like button and don't forget to subscribe to the channel and turn on notifications. So the Bible reading is Acts chapter 15, verse 1 to 21. We'll see you back here in just a moment. We've been watching Chasing the Sun, the Springbok story from the 2019 World Cup. Uh, no spoiler alerts for that one, uh, unlike a few weeks ago. Uh, we know that the Springboks won the World Cup. Uh, spoiler alerts, uh, there is a little bit of swearing in the series, but I think it's in Afrikaans. Now the reason that I mention that is because the account that we have in Acts chapter 15 is not dissimilar to that telling of a story that has already taken place. We know full well uh, the outcome of the 2019 World Cup, the Springboks won. Uh, but as we dive into the series, we learn so much about behind the scenes and the preparation and the coaching and the tactics and everything that went into winning the World Cup. Acts chapter 15 is kind of like that. We live on the other side of it. Uh, we know uh, what it has been like to be a Christian on the other side of what is known as the council that took place in Jerusalem. Uh, we know that we don't have to become Jews first in order to become Christians. But if we dive back into Acts 15, there's so much that we can learn and understand uh, as we dive into this sort of documentary of what actually took place uh, at that time in the early church when you had a bunch of people who had originally followed Jesus who were Jews and became Christians uh, and a bunch of people who were not Jews, they were Gentiles, they were pagans, they were from the other nations, what happened when they became Christians, and some of the friction and some of the tension that took place there, and what the outcome was, and what the implications of that are for us today. So why don't you join with me, and let's get into Acts chapter 15, uh, and unpack a little bit of the story, and then unpack some of the application that goes with it. So... Certain people, verse 1, come from Judea and they go to this church in Antioch. Uh, the church uh, that Paul was at, the church that had just sent out the missionaries in Acts 13 and 14 uh, to spread the news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, the gospel has been in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and it's now reaching the ends of the earth. So this church did that, and some uh, Christians, well, some people at least, from Judea, from Jerusalem, from the mother church, come down. And they start teaching, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now Paul and Barnabas were brought into a sharp dispute and debate with them. Um, this wasn't nice talking, by the way. This was uh, fighting. This was gritting your teeth. This was war. Paul and Barnabas were ready to go to war. There's this sharp dispute that takes place because they're saying, no, you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. So Paul and Barnabas were then appointed by the church in Antioch to go along with some other believers to Jerusalem to see that church, to see the apostles and the elders to discuss this question. Uh, do people who were not Jews who are from the other nations, have to be circumcised in order to be saved. 
So the church sends them on their way, verse 3, and they travel through Phoenicia and Samaria. So it's like backtracking to Judea, to Jerusalem, through Samaria. And they share the news uh, of what has taken place, that the Gentiles, the nations, are being converted. And the news made all the believers very glad. Then they got back to Jerusalem and they were welcomed by the church. They were welcomed by the apostles and the elders. And they told them everything that God had done through them. Uh, they shared what their co-labor with God had resulted in, in many people hearing the gospel, repenting of their sins, and putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and being saved. They hadn't been there long, it seems, when some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and they said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So twice in the first five verses, this issue comes up. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, three things happen. Peter speaks, Barnabas and Paul speak, and then James, James who was Jesus' brother, James who wrote the letter of James in the New Testament, who was now sort of the lead elder, the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem, he then spoke. Peter gets up and he says to them, brothers, you know that some time ago, so he's referring back to Acts chapter 10, 11, uh, 12, um, you know that God made a choice among you that Gentiles might hear from my lips. So Peter's appealing to his experience of what had taken place in his life and in his preaching of the gospel. That God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So Peter preaches the same gospel that everyone else had heard, and in the same way uh, that many had received the Holy Spirit back in Acts chapter 2, uh, so these Gentiles who heard the gospel and believed also received the Holy Spirit. He says, God who knows the heart, he showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, the sign and the seal of salvation. Paul and Barnabas then get up in verse 12, and the whole assembly becomes quiet, and Paul and Barnabas tell about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. Now, Paul and Barnabas don't seem to get a whole lot of airtime, and Luke, who's writing this account, really does shorten whatever it was that they said, and maybe because they were kind of the ones who were trying to argue for not having to be circumcised against those who were arguing that people had to be circumcised. Whatever the case, they make one very uh, important detail uh, in what they say. He tells about the signs and the wonders that God had done among the Gentiles. Now, this is incredibly important uh, because the signs and wonders uh, verify uh, the impact that the gospel was having. But the signs and wonders are also an allusion back to when God performed other signs and wonders, specifically uh, in the book of Exodus, uh, when he brought a people out of slavery and was taking them to the promised land where he established them, God also performed signs and wonders in uh, creating that people. So there's this illusion that God is creating for himself a new people through these signs and wonders. If you want to know more about that, pop me a message. We can talk more about it uh, during the week. They sit down, and when they finish, James gets up. And it's interesting because up to this point, 
the appeal has been mainly through experience. So Peter says, listen, God, you know that God said, uh, that God made a choice among you, and this is what happened, and this was my experience. Paul and Barnabas say, this is our experience, and this is what we saw taking place. James then gets up, but his appeal is very different. When they had finished, he said, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simon has described, so that's Peter, Simon Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to those to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Then James quotes from the scriptures, from the Bible, from the Old Testament, from God's word. He brings together a couple of passages, but mainly Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, which reads, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. So that's a reference to Jesus. Can't get any more explicit than that. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. All right? So what James says is that God has restored the tent of David in Jesus, the house of Israel in Jesus. He's done this so that the rest of mankind might seek the Lord, even the nations who bear my name. So God is saying that there are people among the nations who bear his name. It is the Lord who does these things, and he has planned it from long ago. This was always God's intention. And so James says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogue on every Sabbath. So it's my judgment we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. All that we should uh, speak to them of um, we'll talk a little bit more about this next week, uh, is just that they should uh, follow a life that is in keeping with uh, the commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, to keep yourself away from idolatry, to keep yourself pure, uh, because God is pure and holy, and to not shed blood. So that's the story, that's the point that they arrive at, uh, we'll pick up the second half of chapter 15 next week. But what I want to say is there's so much going on in these first 21 verses that we've got to pause and think through what the implications are for us and what the application is in our lives. So, let me make a couple of points. Number one, Peter says to them, why are you putting God to the test? Uh, he says in verse 9, God did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Peter says, why are you trying to go back to what was? No Israelite could bear the weight of the law. The only yoke that any race can bear is the yoke of Jesus, made light, because he bore the law's demands for holy righteousness, inside and out, and he did that in our place. Don't 
put God to the test. God did not discriminate between us and them. He purified our hearts by faith, and he purifies their hearts by faith. He knows their hearts. And Peter wraps it up. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. Salvation is by the grace of Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. Stop trying to put God to the test by adding. The second thing that we need to understand from this passage is that the righteousness that no one can achieve through law-keeping, Jesus gives through faith. The question that you and I have to ask ourselves is this, have we abandoned our futile attempt to earn God's approval? And are we instead bowing to his humbling mercy? So many people are still trying to earn God's righteousness. Uh, they are not trying to get circumcised, uh, but they are trying to do all kinds of outward things to win God's favor and to make God happy. We cannot achieve righteousness on our own. Righteousness only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We need to be incredibly careful about our motivations for doing anything that we do. Are our motivations for pleasing God there because we are still trying to earn our salvation in some way, shape, or form? Or are we trying to please God because we have bowed the knee, accepted His grace and mercy in our lives, and we long to please Him because He loved us first? The third thing I want to say is that the problem that we have today is not adding to the gospel, it's taking away from the gospel, but the result is identical. How do we do this? Well, what we see taking place around us is a gospel or a Christianity without repentance, a gospel or a Christianity that's all about uh, so-called love, but that has no requirements. It says, come as you are, come in any way, shape, or form, come in any way that you identify. You don't have to repent uh, because there's no real thing as sin. When you remove sin, you remove the need for repentance. Jesus said, Mark chapter 1, the kingdom has come, repent and believe the good news. Uh, the movement of following Jesus Christ is a movement from not trusting to trusting. And when we talk about trusting, what we're talking about is trusting in the message of the gospel. Uh, trusting uh, that Jesus Christ came into the world to bring forgiveness for our sins so that the relationship that we had with God that was broken uh, because we were polluted, because we had broken his law, because we had an inability to love him and that we were dead in our sins, the gospel message is a gospel of restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness, bringing us back into a right relationship with God. If there is no repentance, no turning from sin and turning back to God, well then there is no gospel, there is no Christianity. So people today are not coming in and saying, you have to do this and you have to do this and you have to do this. They're actually coming in and saying, you don't have to do anything and God will accept you just as you are. And that's removing one key component. Yes, God will accept you, regardless of anything that you have done in your life, regardless of any way that you have lived. But you have to 
repent and turn from your sins and turn back to God and put your trust in Him. To put it another way, you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. What does that look like? Well, it looks like loving the things that God loves. Friends, this is a big thing. And I don't want you to think that I'm making it up or standing on a soapbox. And so in the same way that James appealed uh, to God's word, to his self-revelation, let me appeal to the Bible to show you that this is truth that comes directly from God himself. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, we read, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, we read, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their lands. Here is a call to come back to God, to forsake uh, our love for this world, to forsake idolatry, to even forsake our love for selves and to turn to God. Uh, this idea is echoed right the way through the book of Acts. In Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 38, Peter, when he was preaching, uh, and the crowd said to him, What must we do? He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Later on, in chapter 3, and verse 19, he said, Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. In Acts chapter 11 and verse 18, we read, When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the nations repentance unto life. Later on, beyond Acts chapter 15, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, we read this. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. In Luke uh, chapter 15, when Jesus was telling the story of the lost coin, we read that he says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. And in Luke chapter 24 and verse 47, this is what was written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem, but going out to all nations. And so that's really the third thing that we need to understand, is we need to make sure that we are not taking away something from the gospel, that we are not losing something from the gospel, that we are repenting and turning to God, and that we are calling our children, our family, our loved ones, and the world to do the same. We need to make sure that we don't lose the essence of the gospel in a world where anything goes and everything is accepted, 
and you can identify however you want. The fourth thing that we learn from this passage is that God's name is called over the nations, claiming them as a people for his very own. You see, God planned long ago to include the nations, and what that means is he planned long ago to include you and I. Here he issues this worldwide invitation, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Friends, this should move us uh, in incredible ways. It should give us confidence and assurance that God has called us. Uh, it should help us to appreciate the gospel all the more, that God has placed his name over us. And I actually think that there's a link in here to the book of Revelation. I've always been a little bit puzzled in Revelation chapter 3, uh, from verse 7 onwards, where uh, Jesus is writing his letter to the church in Philadelphia, because at the end he says, I'm coming soon, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. Now this is the part I've always wondered about, kind of struggled with a little bit. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. You see what's happening here is that that name that God has placed on those who overcome, that is his name. He has called for himself from the nations a people that bear his name. Now that's the fourth thing. The fifth thing that I want us to notice is that we belong to this new people of God and that as the people of God, we need to learn how we relate to one another. How does our profound unity that we have through this common faith in Jesus Christ work itself out? And I think the principle is a fairly simple one, but it's difficult to work out in everyday life. I think the principle is this. Don't make it difficult for those who are turning to God. That's exactly what James said, isn't it? The freedom of the gospel to live a new life that is determined by Christ and His Spirit and not by the law. There is freedom that comes with the gospel. So don't make it difficult for those who are becoming Christians. But the principle works the other way as well. Don't make it difficult for those who have been Christians, who have a history, who hold to a tradition. I think that when James um, makes uh, his comment about what the nations, the Gentiles must hold to, it's exactly that that he's referring to. Don't make it difficult for the Jewish Christians among you. Uh, rather, make sure there is some uh, graceful reciprocity when it comes to exercising your freedom in Jesus Christ. Live in such a way that it does not hinder the relationships in the church. I think the sixth thing that we learn is that to become a Christian, you do not have to become a Jew, but you also cannot remain the same as what you were before you became a Christian. Becoming a Christian means that you are changed and you are transformed by the gospel. You can't stay where you are. To follow Jesus means to walk a journey and to walk a path. There has to be movement. And so is there movement in your Christian life? Is there change and transformation taking place? Are you the same as what you were when you first professed to follow Jesus Christ? I think the seventh thing that we learn is that the purity of our Savior needs to be reflected in our lives 
in a way that is winsome to all, that our life is meant to be lived as salt and light to the whole world. And so is there something about us that when someone else looks at us and looks at our life, they say, hang on, there's something different going on here. When James makes his comments, calling them out of idolatry, calling them out of uh, sexual impurity, uh, calling them out of bloodshed and the strangling and, and eating that meat, he's calling them out of the culture that they were living in to be countercultural and to form a new culture as Christians, to let the gospel shape and determine that culture. And lastly, there is a need for sensitivity and generosity on all sides. There is a call here uh, so that we do not offend others in order that the gospel can have its free course and its free reign in the midst of people. Now, I know there's eight points of application there, and you might need to go back to pick some of them up. But I think that you can begin to see that as you go into this passage, it's not so dissimilar to Chasing the Sun and all those episodes in the build-up to discovering how it was that the Springboks won the 2019 World Cup. And so as we go back in Acts chapter 15, we discover that there is so much that we can learn and understand about what it means to be a Christian. Salvation by faith uh, because of the grace of God. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Or are you still striving uh, to work for and gain your salvation? Have you taken uh, the light yoke of Jesus upon you? Or are you still carrying uh, the heavy yoke, the burden of the law and your own sins? Are you living in such a way to be winsome to outsiders? Are you making sure that you're not adding to the gospel or taking away from it? Are we living a life uh, of repentance ourselves and calling others to repent? And so as we end our time together, let me end with these words of James. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the nations who are turning to God. Are we as a church making it as easy as possible for people to turn to God as we hold out the saving message of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, and as they come into the church, as they join us, are we making it straightforward and simple for them to be a part and to go on this journey with us towards our heavenly home? Would you bow with me and let's pray. Our Lord God, help us to this end, we pray. Show us our blind spots. Uh, show us where we are ignorant. Show us where we make it difficult to others. Help us, Lord, to hold out the freedom of the gospel and the free message of salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name.